This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. It was the largest ballistic missile attack ever against American forces. God damn! Iran launched 16 missiles carrying warheads weighing more than 1,000 pounds at U.S. troops in Iraq. Stay right here, bro. Don't move. Tonight, that story is told by the men and women who survived it. Well, words can't even describe the amount of energy that is released by these, these missiles. So here's a little bit of a jump. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> There's a lot of incredible things going on at Boston Dynamics. A cutting-edge robotics company that 60 Minutes has been trying to get inside of for years. This is inside Atlas's brain, and it shows its perception system. It's going to use that vision to adjust itself as it goes running over these blocks. Grizzly bears can weigh as much as a thousand pounds and stand nine feet tall on their hind legs. Ah, you're all right. What has happened to these ferocious predators since they were put on the endangered species list in 1975? It's a story of conservation and conflict. 
as we saw in Montana. Tell me I can do this. You're, you Stick can, my I'm, hand in a grizzly bear's I'm mouth. I'm telling you, you can do that. Oh, yeah. How about that? I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Tonight, David Martin on assignment for 60 Minutes. Since President Biden took office, relations with Iran have been tense, but nothing like the eyeball-to-eyeball confrontation during the Trump administration when the two countries almost went to war. It happened over six days in January of 2020, beginning with an American drone strike which killed Iran's most powerful general and ending with an Iranian ballistic missile attack against U.S. troops in Iraq. Earlier this year, we showed you for the first time drone video of what turned out to be the largest ballistic missile attack ever against Americans. And we talked to the troops who were there on the night the U.S. and Iran went to the brink. Hey, buddy. If you're seeing this video, some bad things happened to Dad last night. So I need you to be strong, okay, for Mom. And just always know in your heart that I love you, okay? Bye, buddy. A few hours after Army Major Alan Johnson recorded that message to his son, Iranian ballistic missiles began raining down on Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq, where 2,000 U.S. troops were based. As a drone recorded the attack, Americans caught in the crosshairs could do nothing but run or duck and cover. Holy, holy... God damn! Each missile carried a warhead weighing more than 1,000 pounds. Stay right here, bro. Don't move. Well, words can't even describe the amount of energy that is released by these, these missiles. Johnson was taking cover in a bunker designed to protect troops against much smaller warheads, weighing only 60 pounds. Knocked the wind out of me, followed by the most putrid-tasting ammonia uh, tasting dust that swept through the bunker, coated your teeth. After the blast wave and debris came the flames. The fire was just rolling over the bunker, you know, like 70 feet in the air. Johnson's bunker provided no protection from that. We're going to burn to death. We start heading down 135 meters, make it about a third of the way there. The big voice, we call it, clicks in, incoming, incoming, take cover, take cover, take cover. I've got another football field to run. I don't know when this next missile is going to hit. Can you hear the incoming? Like a freight train going by you. Johnson wasn't the only one frantically searching for cover. It's six people running for their lives to get to this next bunker. Uh, We get to the bunker and realize there's roughly 40 people trying to stuff themselves into this bunker that's made for about 10 folks. And I grabbed the guy in front of me. I'm just like, you got to get in the bunker and just like, like shoved everybody in there. But when you're running between bunkers, 
It's just a matter of what, luck? Luck. The only thing I can actually come up with is that the hand of God protected us because really nobody should have lived through this. Things are happening uh, that could take us to war if, if, uh, if we don't take, make the correct move here. Marine General Frank McKenzie, commander of U.S. forces in the Middle East, monitored the attack from his headquarters at Tampa, Florida. Ducking into this small room off his main operations center, where he could talk directly to the only two people above him in the chain of command. They bring in the Secretary of Defense, and then a little bit later they brought in the President to this conversation. We're listening to the reports of the missiles flying. You ever been on one like this? I've never been on one like this where real missiles being fired at our forces and where I thought the risks were so high. The Iranian attack on al-Assad was in retaliation for a stunning U.S. operation President Trump ordered six nights earlier, a drone strike which killed Iran's most powerful general, Qasem Soleimani. The blood of many Americans is on the hands of Qasem Soleimani. He was as close to an indispensable man as you could find inside Iran. Where he went, violence and death followed. During the American occupation of Iraq, Soleimani had orchestrated attacks which killed more than 600 U.S. troops. And according to McKenzie, he was planning to do it again. We saw intelligence reports where Qasem Soleimani was moving various attack streams forward against our forces in Iraq, against our embassy and against other bases there. Were they imminent? Perhaps in hours, perhaps in days, probably not weeks. Until then, the U.S. had shied away from going after Soleimani for fear killing such a high-ranking government official would only provoke more Iranian attacks. I never take killing anyone as, a, as an easy decision, but I think the risk of not acting in this case outweighed the risks of acting. So yes, I was good with the decision. On January 3rd of last year, an airport security camera recorded Soleimani's arrival in Baghdad on a commercial flight from Damascus. Mackenzie was watching from a different angle. You have the drones overhead. Do you see him get yes. off the airplane? Yes, yes. As Soleimani's entourage pulled away from the plane, Mackenzie gave the kill order to the commander controlling the drones. And then I said, take your shot when you got it. Missiles slammed into both vehicles simultaneously. There's no backslapping, there's no cheering, because now I have to prepare to deal with the consequences of the action. General McKenzie was sure Iran would retaliate, but he didn't know how. And neither for a while did the Iranians. I believe they went into a period of disorganization because they had lost the officer who really uh, spoke up and shaped everything up and told them what they were going to do. So it was kind of a ominous silence. It was a very ominous silence. And what was the first sign that Iran might really be thinking of a ballistic missile attack? They began to move their ballistic missiles. The attack was just hours away when Major Alan Johnson got the word Iran's most powerful weapons were aiming for al-Assad. My intelligence officer pulled me aside and, uh, uh, and basically said, Sir, I've got some bad news for you. What's up? <laughs> we have uh, information that Iran is fueling 27 medium-range ballistic missiles, and their intention is to level this base and we may not survive. This was a completely different um, threat. Lieutenant Colonel Tim Garland commanded an army battalion at Al-Assad, a sprawling airbase about 120 miles west of Baghdad, where the U.S. operated scores of helicopters, drones, and other aircraft. Did the base have any defense against ballistic missiles? 
No, sir. It was such an unprecedented threat. I don't think it was ever calculated. Uh, so the, the capability to uh, prevent a ballistic missile attack, it, it wasn't there. Did you have a plan for what to do? We, uh, we came up with a plan. The only real defense against a ballistic missile attack is to get out of harm's way. Air Force Lieutenant Colonel Stacy Coleman and the rest of al-Assad scrambled to evacuate more than 50 aircraft and 1,000 troops before the missiles hit. But the base still had to be manned. We still needed to be able to do our mission. Um, so the first decision was to split our team by combat capability. What did you think was going to happen to the people you were telling to stay? The honest truth is um, I didn't think that we were going to survive. The best shelter was air raid bunkers built during the rule of Saddam Hussein. But there weren't enough of them. And I just remember uh, a very heavy sinking feeling setting in. It was like, man, we, we are not going to come up with a bunker plan that's going to be adequate for uh, the number of people that we're talking about. So Garland sent most of his soldiers out into the desert where they watched the attack from a safe distance. Holy There was a lot of people who didn't want to leave. Uh, they didn't want to be that guy that was going to relative safety. A lot of people might have trouble understanding what you just said. Tell me why a soldier wouldn't want to go to a safe place. They want to carry the burden. They want to share in the danger. From his headquarters in Tampa, General Frank McKenzie had tried to time the evacuation just right. If you go too early, you, you risk the uh, problem that the enemy will see what you have done and adjust his plans. The Iranians monitored al-Assad by purchasing photos like these taken by commercial satellites. Mackenzie waited until after Iran had downloaded its last picture for the day. So the last time the Iranians took a look with their commercially acquired spy photos, what would they have seen? They would have seen airplanes on the ground and people working. So when they launched those missiles, they thought that was going to be a, a full flight line. I think they expected to destroy a number of U.S. aircraft and to kill a number of U.S. service members. A clock stopped at 1.34 a.m. when it was knocked off the wall, recorded the moment the first missile landed. It's like the sun rising instantaneous. That's how bright it was. Air Force Master Sergeant John Haynes and his security team were outside their armored patrol vehicle when the first missile struck. Across the radio, we heard incoming, incoming, incoming. And what do you do? I just threw the phone down and ran to uh, my vehicle. And then once that impact happened, the back pressure blew our doors closed, and then you just see a cloud of dirt, fire. They call it a, a shock wave, and, and you kind of feel that, that wave almost internally. Like you, it's almost as if your, your organs are, you know, kind of wavering around inside. Sergeant Kimo Kelts was outside the bunkers manning a guard post in case the missile barrage was followed by a ground assault. We got down and we protected our, our vital organs, our heads, and we waited. Did it blow you around? And one of the closest ones that had hit um, directly near us had actually lifted my body uh, about two inches off the ground. Iran fired a total of 16 missiles from three locations. Five missed, 11 landed at Al-Assad. This was an attack like no other. It was an attack certainly like nothing I've ever seen or experienced. What have you learned so far? Their missiles are accurate. Did that surprise you? We knew it, but to see it, they fired those missiles to significant range. 
and they hit pretty much where they wanted to hit. From first launch to last impact was 80 minutes. Somehow, no one was killed. When the sun came up, the survivors surveyed the damage. Holy Shells of a building, you know, skeletal frames left with nothing else. Um, craters about a room size deep into the ground. Concrete barriers blown across a field or a street. It looked like a scene from a movie where everything is destroyed around you, but yet no one was killed. I still have no idea or understanding um, other than, you know, God being on our side that no one was seriously injured and there were no, uh, you know, no, uh, no fatalities. The news traveled fast up the chain of command and President Trump tweeted, all is well. That turned out to be premature. There are people throwing up. Uh, everybody had headaches. I had a concussion for two weeks. What did it feel like? Someone hitting me over the head with a hammer over and over and over. Finally, you know, hours later, we realized we have a mass casualty event here of traumatic brain injury. Military doctors diagnosed more than 100 cases of traumatic brain injury. Major Alan Johnson and 28 other soldiers received Purple Hearts. Do you have any uh, lingering effects today? Headaches every day. Um, horrible tinnitus or ringing in the ears. Um, PTSD, yeah, I'll be willing to admit that. I still have nightmares. But the nightmare of war with Iran had been averted. Had Americans been killed, it would have been very different. Have you ever done an estimate on if you hadn't evacuated the damage that would have been done? So I think we might have lost uh, 20 or 30 airplanes, and we might have lost 100 to 150 U.S. personnel. You had a plan to retaliate if they killed Americans. David, we had a plan to retaliate if Americans had died. Iran was on alert for a possible U.S. strike and hours later shot down a Ukrainian airliner thinking it was an American bomber. 176 entirely innocent people died. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Boston Dynamics is a cutting-edge robotics company that spent decades behind closed doors making robots that move in ways we've only seen in science fiction films. They occasionally release videos on YouTube of their lifelike machines spinning, somersaulting, or sprinting, which are greeted with fascination and fear. As we first told you this past spring, we've been trying without any luck to get into Boston Dynamics Workshop for years. And in March, they finally agreed to let us in. After working out strict COVID protocols, we went to Massachusetts to see how they make robots do the unimaginable. From the outside, Boston Dynamics headquarters looks pretty normal. Inside, however, it's anything but. 
If Willy Wonka made robots, his workshop might look something like this. There are robots in corridors, offices, and kennels. They trot and dance and whirl, and the 200 or so human roboticists who build and often break them barely bat an eye. That is Atlas, the most human-looking robot they've ever made. It's nearly five feet tall, 175 pounds, and is programmed to run, leap, and spin like an automated acrobat. Mark Rayburn, the founder and chairman of Boston Dynamics, doesn't like to play favorites, but definitely has a soft spot for Atlas. So here's a little bit of a jump. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> Atlas isn't doing all this on its own. Technician Brian Hollingsworth is steering it with this remote control. But the robot's software allows it to make other key decisions autonomously. So really the robot is you know, doing incredible. all its own balance, all its own control. Brian's just steering it, telling it what speed and direction. Its computers are adjusting how the legs are placed and what forces it's applying in order to keep it uh, balanced. Atlas balances with the help of sensors, as well as a gyroscope and three onboard computers. It was definitely built to be pushed around. Good, push it a little bit more. It's just trying to keep its balance. You know, just like you will if I push you. Uh. And you can push it in any direction. You can push it from the side. Making machines that can stay upright on their own and move through the world with the ease of an animal or human has been an obsession of Mark Rayburt's for 40 years. The space of time you've been working in is nothing compared to the time it's taken for animals and humans to develop. Some people look at me and say, oh, Rayburt, you've been stuck on this problem for 40 years. Animals are amazingly good, and people, at, um, at what they do. You know, we're so agile, we're so versatile. We really haven't achieved what humans can do yet, but I think, I think we can. Raybird isn't making it easy for himself. He's given most of his robots legs. Why focus on, on legs? I would think wheels would be easier. Yeah, wheels and tracks are great if you have a prepared surface, like a road or even a dirt road. But people and animals can go anywhere on Earth uh, using their legs. And so that, you know, that was the inspiration. Ready? One, two. Some of the first contraptions he built in the early 1980s bounced around on what looked like pogo sticks. They appeared in this documentary when Raybert was a pioneering professor of robotics and computer science at Carnegie Mellon. He founded Boston Dynamics in 1992, and with CEO Robert Plater, has been working for decades to perfect how robots move. They developed this robot called Big Dog for the military, as well as this larger pack mule that could carry 400 pounds on its back. Experimenting with speed, they got this cheetah-like robot to run nearly 30 miles an hour. None of these made it out of the prototype phase, but they did lead to this. It's called Spy. Boston Dynamics made it not knowing exactly how it would be used, but the inspiration for it isn't hard to figure out. So Spot is a omnidirectional robot, so I can go forwards and backwards. This is crazy. <laughs> this is the real benefit of legs. Uh, legs give you that capability. That's Robert Plater, the CEO, and Hannah Rossi, a technician who works on Spot. I'm not doing anything special to let it walk over those rocks. There you go. The controls are easier to use than you might expect. Does it have to come in straight You don't on? have to be perfect about it. Drive it close to wherever you want to go, and the robot will do the rest. Wow. 
in some ways, it's like driving a very sophisticated remote control car. What makes it different? Spot is really smart about its own locomotion. It deals with all the details about how to place my feet, what gait to use, how to manage my body, so that all you have to tell it is the direction to go to. And in some cases, you don't even have to do that. When signaled, Spot can take itself off its charging station and go for a walk on its own, as long as it's pre-programmed with the route. It uses five 3D cameras to map its surroundings and avoid obstacles. I mean, it is like something... Atlas has a similar technology. While we were talking in front of Atlas, this is how it saw us. This is inside Atlas's brain, and it shows its perception system. So what looks like a flashlight is really the data that's coming back from its cameras. And it, you see the white rectangles, that means it's identifying a place that it could step. And then once it identifies it, it attaches those footsteps to it, and it says, okay, I'm gonna try and step there. And then it adjusts its mechanics so that it actually hits those places when it's uh, running. All of that happens in a matter of milliseconds. And so it's gonna use that vision to adjust itself as it goes running over these blocks. Atlas costs tens of millions of dollars to develop, but it's not for sale. It's used purely for research and development. But Spot is on the market. Around 500 are out in the world. They sell for about $75,000 a piece. Accessories cost extra. Some Spots work at utility companies, using mounted cameras to check on equipment. Others monitor construction sites, and several police departments have tried them out to assist with investigations. Let's talk about the, the fear factor. When you post a video of Atlas or Spot doing something, a ton of people are amazed by it and think it's great, and there's a lot of people who think this is terrifying. The rogue robot story is a powerful story, and it's been told for 100 years, but it's fiction. Robots don't have agency. They don't make up their own minds about what their tasks are. They operate within a narrow bound of their programming. It is easy to project human qualities onto these machines. I think people do attribute uh, to our robots much more than they should because, you know, they haven't seen machines move like this before. And so they, they want to project intelligence and emotion onto that in ways that are fiction. In other words, these robots still have a long way to go. I mean, it's not C-3PO, it, it's not yeah. thinking. So let me tell you about that. There's a cognitive intelligence and an athletic intelligence. You know, cognitive intelligence is making plans, making decisions, uh, reasoning, and things like that. It's not doing that. It's mostly doing athletic intelligence, which is managing its body, its posture, its energetics. If you told it to travel in a circle in the room, it can go through the sequence of steps. But if you ask it to uh, go find me a soda, it's, it's not doing anything like that. Oh, no. Just picking an item off the floor can sometimes be a struggle for Spot. Enabling it to open a door has taken years of programming and practice. And a human has to tell it where the hinges are. Each time we add some new capability and we feel like we've got it to a decent point, that's when you push it to failure to figure out, you know, how good of a job you've really done. Kevin Blankisbohr is one of the lead engineers here, but at times he prefers a very low-tech approach to testing robots. You're pretty tough on robots. 
We think of that as, as just another way to push them out of their comfort zone. Failure is a big part of the process. When trying something new, robots, like humans, don't get it right every time. There might be dozens of crashes for every one success. How often do you break a robot? We break them all the time. I mean, it's part of our culture. We have a motto, build it, break it, fix it. To do that, Boston Dynamics has recruited roboticists with diverse backgrounds. There's plenty of PhDs, but also bike builders and race car mechanics. Bill Washburn is part of that pit crew. They all look pretty dinged up. Yeah. How often do these get need to get repaired? The biggest kind of failures for me are like the bottom part of the robot breaks off of the top part of the robot. <laughs> Seems like, like a big, big and failure. And the hydraulic uh -huh. hoses are the only thing holding it together. Recently, Raybird and his team decided to push their robots in a way they never had before. We spent at least six months, maybe eight, just preparing for what we were going to do. And then we started to get the technical teams working on the behavior. The behavior was dancing. All their robots got in on the act. The movements were cutting edge, but the music and the mashed potato were definitely old school. There are some people who see that and say, that can't be real. Nothing's more gratifying than hearing that. What's the point in proving that the robot can do the mashed potato? This process of you know, doing new things with the robots lets you generate new tools, new approaches, new understanding of the problem uh, that takes you forward. But man, isn't it just fun? But I mean, it's, it costs a lot of money. It took 18 months of your time. I think it was worth it. <laughs> Whether it'll be worth it to Boston Dynamics' new owners is less clear. A lot of detail. The South Korean car maker Hyundai has purchased a majority stake for nearly a billion dollars. It is Boston Dynamics' third owner in eight years. There's pressure to turn their research into revenue. And Boston Dynamics hopes this new robot will help. It's called Stretch, and it's due to go on sale next year. This was the first time they'd shown it publicly. Warehouse is, is really the next frontier for robotics. Stretch may not be that exciting to look at, but it's built with a definite purpose in mind. It's got a seven-foot arm, and they say it can move 800 boxes an hour in a warehouse and work for up to 16 hours without a break. Unlike many industrial robots that sit in one place, Stretch is designed to move around. You can drive it around with a joystick, and at times that's the easiest way to get it set up. But once it's ready to go in a truck, and unload it, you hit go, and from there on, it's autonomous. And it'll keep finding boxes and moving them until it's all the way through. This generation of robots is going to be different. They're going to work amongst us. They're going to work next to us in ways where we help them, but they also take some of the burden from us. The more robots are integrated into the workforce, the more jobs would be taken away. At the same time, you're creating a new industry. We envision a job we, we, we like to call the robot Wrangler. He'll launch and manage five to 10 robots at a time and sort of uh, keep them all working. Is there a robot you've always dreamt of making that you haven't <laughs> been able to do yet? A car with an active suspension, essentially legs, like, like a roller skating robot. And a robot like that, you know, could go anywhere on earth. That's one thing that uh, 
maybe we'll do at some point. But you know, really, the sky's the limit. There's, there's all kinds of things we can and will do. As with so many things Boston Dynamics does, it's hard to imagine how that would work. But then again, who'd have thought a bunch of metal machines would one day show us all how to do the mashed potato? When Lewis and Clark first encountered grizzly bears, there may have been 100,000 of them in the American West, from what is now Canada all the way down to Mexico. Grizzlies are among the most fearsome predators on the planet. So for the next 150 years, they were systematically exterminated by settlers, ranchers, and farmers who saw them as a threat to their lives and livelihoods. By the 1960s, there were just a few hundred left in the lower 48 states. In 1975, grizzly bears were among the first animals to be protected under the Endangered Species Act. And as we reported last year, what's happened since, especially in the state of Montana, is a story both of conservation and conflict. Ever been face to face with a grizzly? Neither had we. Ready? Yeah. In the Swan Mountains of northwestern Montana, we are carrying bear spray and following state bear specialist Eric Wenham and his colleague Milan Vinks deep into the woods. Hey! Wenham is checking one of several traps called snares. Oh, there's a bear. That he has baited with beaver meat. Oh, grizzly bear. You hear that? The closer we get, the more agitated she's gonna become, so we'll kind of be quiet. Um, get a good weight assessment on her, and then we'll just drift right back out. Okay? I'm with you. All right. You're okay. You're all right. You're okay. You're okay. You're all right. You're all right. After the wire snare around its wrists stops the first charge at Wenham, the grizzly makes another effort to get at our cameraman, Don Lee. Uh, you're all right. All right, we'll drift out. Do you have an estimate of how big that bear is? How much do you think she uh, weighs? I think it's right around 300 pounds. That's mid-size for a grizzly. They can weigh as much as a thousand pounds and stand nine feet tall on their hind legs. We're gonna mix a little bit of metatomidine in there. Wenham and Vinks mix a cocktail of veterinary sedatives and load them into a dart gun. You have the dart, I have the bear spray. And they're ready. ready to go, we are set. Vinks carries a shotgun loaded with lethal ammunition just in case. Wenham insists that neither the tranquilizer nor the snare do any lasting harm, and that he needs both as part of a project to attach radio collars to grizzlies and track their population's recovery. To me, having a grizzly bear population means that the ecosystem is intact. Hillary Cooley is the wildlife biologist in charge of grizzly bear recovery for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Grizzly bears were listed in 1975 as a threatened species in the lower 48 states. I thought their survival was in jeopardy. Yeah, their range had been reduced by about 98 percent. 
Two places grizzlies hadn't been wiped out were Glacier and Yellowstone National Parks, where a few hundred were protected from eradication. So starting 45 years ago, the recovery effort focused on millions of acres around those two parks. They've probably more than tripled their numbers, hmm. and their range now is more than double what it was at the time of listing. Since listed as an endangered species back in 1975, the grizzly bear population in this region has made a remarkable comeback, a true success story. But at the same time, another population has also been growing around here, the human population, with houses and subdivisions built right next to the wilderness. And that's often where the trouble starts. Montana's human population has grown by 250,000 since grizzlies were protected in 1975. Most of those people live on valley floors or in foothills not far from bear country. When you can look at the telemetry from their collars, you realize that at night, this valley belongs to bears. A bear has walked, I've seen the telemetry, through the spot where you and I are sitting right now, and we are within 100 feet of my house. Bryce Andrews is a rancher, author, and field director for a nonprofit called People and Carnivores, which tries to minimize human bear conflict. He's seen all the videos of grizzlies going through trash cans, raiding chicken coops, and backyard bird feeders, even the fridge. They are true omnivores and really hungry from the moment they emerge from hibernation each spring. Anything with caloric value, a bear will turn it into what they need to survive. So they will eat any and everything. Any and everything. They'll come for bird seed. They'll come for the residue on a barbecue. It's their appetites that get them into trouble with humans. Absolutely. The greatest trouble comes when grizzlies go after livestock or crops that ranchers and farmers count on for their livelihoods. Bears can be really hard to live with. They kill livestock. There are producers who have 20, 30 cows a year killed by grizzly bears. And so for Sounds like a lot. Folks, it's a lot. It's a big impact. The bears probably knocked down between 20 and 25% of my corn that I couldn't harvest every year. Greg Schock farms in Montana's Mission Valley. He says grizzlies live in the woods about a mile from his home. We had 18 several years in a row in our cornfield, and nobody believed that I had that many until they put cameras up and, and actually had footage of them. 18 in your cornfield? In a 100-acre cornfield, yeah. With so many grizzlies around, now nearly 2,000, the federal government has considered removing some populations from the endangered species list. So far, court challenges from environmental groups and Native Americans have prevented that. You think it is possible to coexist? I think we have to. If we don't coexist, what's, who's leaving? The bears aren't leaving and we aren't leaving, so. So Bryce Andrews' organization does things like install high-voltage electric fences around fields like this 30-acre melon farm. Grizzlies are smart enough to test the fences and sometimes even get around them. We've got a, an electrified gate here, which is off it right now. Andrews has an electric fence around his backyard chicken coop, but not all of his neighbors do. Generally, when there are unprotected chickens in grizzly habitat, it's only a matter of time before something goes wrong. The grizzly bear will win. They'll win, and see, they have these phenomenal noses. They smell everything. 
including neighborhood trash cans. If a grizzly develops a taste for garbage, gets accustomed to being near people, and then teaches those bad habits to her cubs, it can prove fatal. Bears that get into such trouble are often trapped by state bear managers. At first, they're relocated to remote regions and released. But if they keep coming back, federal official Hillary Cooley may need to authorize killing them. Ultimately, that's my decision. What's that like? It's the worst part of the job. <laughs> it's, but it's necessary. Why necessary? If we think it's a threat to human safety, for example, a food-conditioned bear, bears can kill people, and it's something we don't mess with. If there's a threat to human safety, we remove it right off the bat. And remove, you... Euthanize. Euthanize. She had to authorize the killing of nearly 50 grizzlies in 2019. Hey. The grizzly bear we saw Eric Wenham tranquilize in the Swan Mountains may never have seen a human being before, let alone gotten into trouble. Do you know, is it a male or a female? I don't yet. How long will this grizzly be out? About an hour. About an hour? In uh, 20 minutes. It's a male. Oh, it's a male. Why, why were you hoping for a female? We want a radio collar females. Females drive the system. They, they really do. One, One two, two, three. Will you collar him? We collar some males. Um, we're not going to collar this guy, though. Boy, look at those claws. The forest becomes a field hospital as they attach monitors and even an oxygen bottle to the grizzly. So he's at 88% oxygen. I like it when it's 90, 95, so I want to get him up. We measured every part of the bear. Five and a quarter, okay. Blood is drawn. Tufts of hair pulled for DNA analysis. I'm going to call him a five-year-old bear, okay? So you can see these are his incisors, and if you run your fingernail over the top, you can still feel some cusping. So go ahead. Tell me I can do this. You're, Stick you my hand in a grizzly bear's I'm mouth. I'm telling you, you can do that. Oh, yeah. How about that? Less right. than an hour after being darted, a bit ahead of schedule. He's moving a little bit here. The grizzly starts to stir. So he's starting to wake okay. up. Everybody, we're ready to go. Why don't you guys head on out? Everybody go. We didn't need to be told again. As we hustled out, Wenham removed the hood from the bear's head and hurried out himself. Your first question will be, does that happen often? <laughs> when he was sniffing up, that when he's lifting his go. head, it's time to go. It's time to go. We had about as safe an encounter with a grizzly bear as is possible to have. But with more people going deep into bear country to hike or bike or camp or hunt, there are several decidedly unsafe encounters every year. I didn't really get a warning, and uh, all of a sudden there's a grizzly bear running at me. And in about probably less than a second, uh, it was on me. Anders Brosty was hunting for deer and elk with a friend in the wilderness north of his Montana home on November 11, 2018, when he stumbled upon a grizzly who'd been dozing in the snow. It bit my arm here, kind of thrashed it around, and then bit my leg here, started pulling on me and kind of tossing me around. And then it just dropped my foot and ran off. 
Do you have any idea why he didn't just finish you off or drag you off? Nope. Brosty's hunting partner, Dan, reached him within a minute or two. Luckily, they had a cell phone signal to call 911. State Bear Specialist Eric Wenham was one of the first responders on the scene, and he snapped a photo of a very large paw print in the snow. They had to chopper you out. Two choppers. How long were you in the hospital? Uh, I was in the hospital for six days. Uh, in that six days, I had three different surgeries. My arm was broken, my thumb was broken, and my hand was dislocated. My foot was basically held to my, my ankle with soft tissue. This is the grizzly that attacked Anders Brosty in a photo taken four years earlier when state bear managers trapped and released him. DNA samples proved the match. So the bear that attacked you is still out there. Yep. Does that bother you? You okay with that? I'm okay with it. I was intruding. So to me, the bear's response was not any more inappropriate than what somebody else's response would be if I trespassed into their home. Brosty, who is the co-founder of a company that makes mountain bikes, is back on his after many months of tough rehab. And, he says, he and his friend Dan plan to go hunting again this November 11th, the anniversary of the attack. I think it's part of what makes Montana wild. If we didn't have grizzly bears, like, it'd be a little less wild. They're a part of our ecosystem. They play a role in everything that's going on around here. I think that's kind of cool. I'd I'd prefer not to see one that close again, though. (laughs) Two people have been killed by grizzlies in Montana so far this year. A man attacked in April while fishing, and just last month, a woman who was pulled out of her tent by a bear. Both grizzlies were found and killed by authorities. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Scott Pelley. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. Why? Why? If you have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. 
two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Are you a fan of 60 Minutes? You can represent the most watched series on television with shirts, sweatshirts, mugs, and more at ParamountShop.com. You can take 20% off with code MINUTES20. That's 20% off at checkout on all 60 Minutes products with code MINUTES20 at ParamountShop.com. 